faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's the beginning of a new academic year in 2008, the beginning of a new football season for the Pirates, uh, here at East Carolina, and the beginning of a new season, the fifth season of Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back, uh, listeners. It's good to be back doing the show live once again and uh, uh, looking forward to getting your comments by email or otherwise as the season goes on. Let me know if there are any people you'd like to hear, books you'd like to hear about, subjects you'd like to hear discussed. That's always welcome. We have uh, some really uh, interesting guests lined up for the season, uh, names uh, most listeners will recognize, people like Peter Cousins, Noah, Andre Trudeau, Ed Ayers, George Rabel. Uh, it promises to be an excellent uh, year of discussion of Civil War topics here on Civil War Talk Radio. And we have new phones here at East Carolina University. The Taxpayers of the state have ponied up to replace the legacy phone system here in the Brewster Building, uh, for which parts had not been made, I think, since 1974. And uh, after all the cannibalization uh, that they could possibly do was, was done with, they finally got rid of those phones and put in new ones, which have all kinds of fabulous uh, new, uh, uh, new technology, new buttons to push, 50 different ringtones that we can select from. 
the drawback to that is the ringtones were selected by the IT department. And, um, you know, I thought Monty Python was hysterical when I was in high school. Uh, and it still, it still holds up in many ways. But, you know, seven Monty Python ringtones to choose from out of 50 is, is just too many. Um, I think the, the, they might have done a little better with that. And none of them relate to the Civil War, I should point out. But enough about the phones. Hopefully the phone quality, sound quality is good. We'll talk to our uh, engineer, Anthony, about that later today, hopefully, and make sure you can hear everything. But uh, as to what to hear, it's time uh, again to resume the show. One more housekeeping note before we start is uh, hopefully before this season of the show ends, we'll be able to uh, get an auxiliary Civil War talk radio website up somewhere that will have uh, background information on the shows and other things that you can't see on the, the current website where you can hear the show. Uh, still working on that, no promises. One advantage is we could reinstate the PayPal donation button. If you are so moved to contribute to the show, the address is civilwartr at aol.com. It's not tax deductible. I can use the money to buy bourbon if I so choose. Uh, but it is. it will go toward either purchasing books for the show or for uh, website fees if we get that alternate website going. So civilwartr at aol.com is uh, the PayPal address for those who wish to uh, help support Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today, uh, a new and a new author to the Civil War world, uh, is Russell S. Bonds. Uh, Mr. Bonds, are you there? I am, Jerry. How do uh, I sound on the new phones? You sound fabulous. Uh, wonderful. May I call you Russ? Uh, Please do. Russell, uh, d d does that work for you? Please call me Russ. Uh, it, it's, it's good to talk with you. We, we exchanged a few voicemails uh, with, with the fabulous new phones. The old phones did not allow voicemail. You, you could leave a voicemail, but it would only show up hours, sometimes days after it was left, uh, which was not very professional. Uh, but now we're in good shape here. Um, Russ, you, according to the back of the book, uh, have a day job at the Coca-Cola company. Is that correct? Um, that's, that's true. And just as you issued disclaimers, I should probably issue one as well. That Of, of course, this is an after-hours venture for me, uh, working on uh, the, uh, the book and other projects. So if I were to ask about the Andrews Raiders, for example, would they have preferred Pepsi or Coke? You would give, just give a pure historian's answer, not not one based on your employer's wish. Absolutely. Okay. I won't ask that question, though. Okay, fair enough. Um, I am actually here in Pepsi country, invented in New Bern, just down the road from Greenville. Uh, I personally prefer the astringent petrochemical taste of Diet Coke to all other beverages. Uh, but around here, Pepsi seems to dominate. Uh, Diet Coke, uh, nectar of the gods. It, there's something about it. it it's, there's like, it's like no natural flavor, but uh, I'm looking at a Diet Pepsi on my table right here in front of me because that's what the student store has, and I can barely choke it down. Um, well, you, you practice law, I understand. That's correct. I'm in the legal department here. I've, I've been here for six years now. And I, I mentioned that because I practiced law before I became a historian, and... I heard a lecture this morning from a, uh, a historian speaking to one of my classes who talked about how frequently he would encounter at parties a lawyer or doctor who would just be green with envy, oh, if only I could be a historian too, because we have so much more fun. We just make less money, but we do have more fun. Um, 
how how did you choose between law and history, or what is your what interest do you have in history bet, between uh, uh, that would lead you to write a book in in your after hours? Well, I, I, my uh, background educationally is actually more of a technical background. I went to uh, Georgia Tech right across the street from me here, um, studied architecture, and um, as I went along, uh, the courses that I enjoyed the most were the architecture history courses. Um, and uh, uh, by my senior year of college, was thinking more about law school. Um, and uh, uh, after I got out of law school and, and began practicing, uh, history sort of returned for me as a as a hobby. And um, uh, did more and more reading on it, and eventually started to to write a little bit. Um, and uh, this particular project came up for me as I was um, looking for a history to read about uh, the Andrews raid. Uh, which was a story that I was familiar with from growing up here in North Georgia. Uh, and I f- went uh, to the library, went to the bookstores, and couldn't find anything. Um, so uh, I started pulling together materials, and before I knew it, I was working on a book of my own. I would imagine most people first learned about the, the Andrews Raid or the Great Locomotive Chase from the Disney movie uh, of the same name, which I don't know that I've ever seen. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, a lot of people do come to this story through the movies. Uh, there was actually a movie, a silent movie in the 20s, a Buster Keaton film called The General, uh, widely considered by critics one of the top comedies of all time, and it, it, interestingly praised by Orson Welles as the Civil War movie, by the way. Hmm. Uh, he considered it head and shoulders above, above Gone with the Wind, for example. Um, but then later in the 1950s, Walt Disney, who was a, a huge uh, train and railroad buff, uh, became interested in the story and uh, brought it to the big screen as The Great Locomotive Chase, starring Fess Parker. Um, and I, I should say that when I uh, travel around and talk about the book, I have a lot of people of, of a wide range of ages who tell me that they grew up watching that movie. Um, I, I think it's not only folks who were kids in the 50s, but also those who watched um, the movie sort of rerunning on The Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday nights, yeah. um, which is uh, where I first saw it uh, in the 70s. Now, the, uh, you mentioned that, that Disney was a, a train buff, and I imagine the story must appeal uh, to, to people with, with a train interest. Do you get, uh, when you talk about your book, do you get uh, a mix of Civil War buffs and train buffs in the same audience? I, I do, and one of the appeals to the story for me is I felt like it had some appeal beyond um, the Civil War area, had crossed over into the railroad area, and then, of course, had this um, sort of enduring uh, legacy of uh, the Medal of Honor. Um, the first award of the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, was given to participants in the in the Andrews Raid. And so, you know, there, it, it sort of crossed a, a number of different areas of history that I, I found very interesting. I, I, I do get um, uh, questions and interest from, from what I'll call the sort of the rivet-counting railroaders, um, which is not my uh, particular expertise, although I did my best to do my homework and get the details right in the book. I, I can imagine the sort of intersection of, of geekiness between uh, uh, intense train people and intense Civil War people you know, could reach a critical mass at one of these meetings. I, I think that's right. I, I tell my wife that I, I do have book groupies, but they're all, um, you know, 65-year-old men who uh, like to play with trains. So, yeah. 
Well, you're you're among friends here, then. Uh, <laughs> Very comfortable audience, I'm sure. The uh, well, let's talk about the raid itself and, and sort of lay it out. I imagine most listeners certainly have heard of the raid and have some outline of it, but uh, you certainly go into more detail and, and tell the story more thoroughly than it has been told uh, ever before. Uh, and let's start at the beginning. What, what's the strategic context of this? What makes this other anything we should pay attention to other than a dramatic story? Does it have any actual strategic meaning? Well, well it does. And it, in a way, it's, to me, sort of a, a foreshadowing of uh, of the importance of the Western and Atlantic Railroad and the role it would play in the Atlanta campaign uh, two years later. Um, but this was a time, you know, early spring, uh, 1862, uh, a lot of uncertainty in the war. Things had not gone very well for the Union to that point. Um, and, uh, um, you know, there was a sense that the Union armies were stalled east and west. And Abraham Lincoln was was uh, particularly interested in East Tennessee and Chattanooga. At one point, he 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 would say during the war that Chattanooga is is as important as Richmond. Um, and and I describe it in the book as if if the if the theater is a tic tac toe board, then Chattanooga is sort of center square, and possession of Chattanooga can can block rail transport across and down. So um, the the uh, idea of the Andrews raid in early 1862 is um, is an effort to cut the rail connection between Atlanta and Chattanooga, the Western and Atlantic Railroad, and isolate the city of Chattanooga, which was very thinly defended by the Confederates at that point, um, and and offer an opportunity for the Union to to gain control of of uh, Chattanooga. Um, you know, almost two years earlier than that would happen uh, as things would play out. So if, if you think about it as a way to accelerate the, the timetable and potentially open the door to the Deep South much earlier in the war than than, uh, than uh, would have happened otherwise. Now, the, the Union commanding officer, not of the raid itself, not Andrews, but uh, of the Union forces in Tennessee at that time was uh, uh, General Ormsby Mitchell, and he he is quite a character. Tell us something about him. Right, Mitchell commanded uh, the third division in the Army of the Army of the the Ohio. I know you're you're a little familiar with that uh, with that force. I've come across it. Yes, um, and uh, Mitchell had about ten thousand men in Middle Tennessee and uh, was sort of uh, chafing under the. Uh, under the the hand of his superior officer Don Carlos Buell, uh, who he regarded as very slow, and uh, Mitchell was a very ambitious character, wanting to make his mark. Um, he, you're right; he is a very interesting fellow. He was the uh, leading astronomer in the United States before the war, sort of the Carl Sagan of his day. Um, lectured uh, widely on um, astronomy and other topics, and also had served as chief engineer of two different railroad companies. So um, he he was aware of the importance of the East-West Railroad from Corinth to Chattanooga, the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, that was called, and then the Western and Atlantic, uh, which uh, which met in Chattanooga. So his plan was to march south uh, towards Huntsville, Alabama, and break the, the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, and then make a left turn and head towards Chattanooga. Um, right on cue, in a way, 
uh, a Kentucky spy by the name of James Andrews showed up in Mitchell's camp and proposed this plan to take a couple of dozen volunteers with him deep behind uh, Confederate lines into Georgia, steal a train, and then break that railroad line to cut off Chattanooga and sort of leave the door wide open for Mitchell to, to come marching in. That was the way it was supposed to work anyhow. In the context of this era, it's not it's not a crazy plan. As you point out in your book, in November of 1861, there was uh, an outbreak of bridge burning in East, eastern Tennessee where Union loyalists were, were burning railroad bridges to try to cut Confederate transportation. So this, this fits in with that notion that, that you can sever the railroad lines by destroying the bridges. Uh, right, and there was some success in doing that, that that really shut down rail traffic for a few days in November of, of 1861. And, you know, the the, um, the facility with, with which um, Union forces could quickly repair, I'm sorry, uh, Confederates uh, could, could repair their railroads, uh, both armies got better at it as the war went on. Uh, but um, uh, railroad management and logistics um, and and repair uh, were still coming along in that early days in the early days of the war. So um, it, it it was you know it was uh, a sensible idea um, on paper and and it just just didn't really work out uh, uh, in the realities of, of how things went. Now Andrews shows up as you say at, at Mitchell's tent and says I've I've got a great idea. Mitchell says okay go ahead. Uh, Take a couple dozen guys with you. Who does Andrews choose, or how does he? Are these the best and the brightest? Is there a competition? Do they draw straws? How, how does he get his his force? Well, they, they're they're volunteers uh, taken from three Ohio regiments: the Second, Twenty um, First, and Thirty Third Ohio. Um, and um, as you read and, and research and sort of learn how the procedure went, it, it really seems, in a sense, that they were more volunteered uh, than than they were um, actual uh, volunteers. So colonels uh, uh, across um, across the the various regiments were asked to uh, offer up volunteers for this raid. And interestingly. Um, uh, many of these men turn out to be at least somewhat uh, ne'er do wells. Uh, there are some some troublemakers, some some men who drink, um, a, a, a sort of a scrawny uh, school teacher type who's known for uh, talking his companions almost to death. Um, now, by saying that, I don't mean to minimize their valor going forward. Certainly, they they all served bravely. Uh, and and boldly in this raid, uh, but there does seem to be a bit of a uh, a bit of a sort of dirty two dozen um, appearance to this group once it's all cobbled together. Yeah, it, it actually reminded me of the Devil's Brigade, if you remember that World War II movie, uh, right. in which the, uh, the there's a, a Canadian and an American battalion are, are going to be joined for some commando action. And they call for volunteers. The Canadians send their best, strongest volunteers. The American officers all uh, use the opportunity to call their units of their worst guys. Right. Send those off, and so you get the culture clash. Of the, and, and I kind of thought of that reading about these guys, that they really were, as you say, the, the cast-offs in some cases. Yeah, it does sort of evoke the sort of World War II raid behind enemy lines uh, uh, movies that, uh, that we grew up with. It does, which is something that was not part of Civil War culture in the same way. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk about how this fits into the whole culture of, of 
fighting in the Civil War. And we'll also, for those who haven't read the story recently, talk about what actually happened when the raid gets started. We'll do all that when we get back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 